Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Now, on with the show. The history of the nurse anesthesia profession suggests that regardless of the challenge or crisis facing it, the right person at the right time with the right message was chosen by the membership to lead. This segment of our podcast is entitled The Courage to Lead. We are pleased to highlight some of these contemporary visionary leaders. We want to express gratitude to all and give encouragement to those that will accept the challenge in the future. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, Welcome to Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley, and I've been working with CRNAs for over 23 years, and I'm married to one. And my co-host is... Sharon Pierce. Sharon's a practicing CRNA for over 20 years, a past president of the ANA, the NCANA, and she's held many other leadership roles. As usual, our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNAs, and I think our topic today is definitely going to do that. And All right, Sharon, we're back together. Well... Good morning. Good morning. Have yeah. you had your coffee this morning? You know, I don't touch the stuff. I, I've heard it's bad for me, so I don't. I don't do it. Well, that doesn't stop you from doing other stuff. That's <laughs> well, you know, bad you've got to draw you. a line somewhere. You and that's everything where you that's draw. bad for you. You know, you, you, know, you die early. I don't want to do that. So. <laughs> that's why you keep. That's why your wife is so much younger. She's going to keep you going. Well, exactly. That's right. You know, just like your children. You know, your children keep you young, and then they kill you. So, yeah. You know. Well, there you have it. Uh, wives can do the same thing. <laughs> we are We're not, not going, going down there. That no. Yeah, I, mean, I knew you were going to say that one. So. <laughs> well, what time is it this morning? It is time to wake up, That's Jeremy. That's right. We want to thank our listeners for listening this morning. And we have a special guest in the house as part of our Courage to Lead series. Oh, I love this series. Yeah, it's great. We I'm have, learning so much. Oh, yeah. Me too, actually. Mm-hmm. A lot. We have uh, Dick Goulette with us today. Welcome, Dick. Hello, pleased to be with you. We're glad you're here with us. And and Dick's going to talk this morning about his not one term as A&A president, but two terms as A&A president. Dick squared. I guess uh, the first time wasn't good enough. You had to do it again or... Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> it was so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Dick, why don't you just kind of tell us some of the, the highlights and, and points from each one of your terms that maybe our listeners would be interested in? Okay. I think first of all would be my first term, which was 85, 1985, 1986. And uh, we had been very involved with ANA at the time with getting direct reimbursement. And we were going into our fourth year of direct reimbursement, so seek, trying to seek reimbursement. I was very interested at that time. We had many other uh, things I was interested in for our organization. And to begin with, first and foremost, is 
it was always bothersome to me that the committees would end up meeting in late fall before the fall assembly. And it made it really kind of difficult. I thought it'd be interesting if we could get them to meet earlier. And so that was the first time we had joint committees, which was the uh, Mike had that, and that was in Anaheim, was right after the uh, post-convention board meeting that we ended up having all our committees meet. Right after the board meeting? Right after the meeting. They all stayed an extra day for that so that all the committees could end up having their charges and what they were supposed to be doing for the year. Great idea. And I think Peggy McFadden, who followed me, I think made it what they ended up being the joint committees, and it went on from there. So that Mm -hmm. was the initial. The second thing that I was interested in at the time also was the Long Range Planning Committee had for many years had proposed to us that we should really consider moving our programs into a master's framework, and nobody was really putting that number one on the calendar, and I kind of thought this would be an interesting thing to end up doing at the time. So that was one of the major points that we had, uh, that I had on that, on my agenda. And the other thing that we were looking at is up until that time, all our outside meetings were all being done by an outside firm. And we have talked about maybe, you know, it's time to bring in-house why pay all this money when we could end up turning around and generating the money to add to our own? Wait, wait, wait. Somebody else did our meetings? Yes. Wow. Yeah, and uh, I'm blank to what his name is, but we ended up having various firms, and Mm -hmm. we used to contract with them, and they used to be the ones who would pick the convention centers and would end up getting everything all together they would take care of getting the uh, the various sponsors who were coming into the meeting and everything that was all done out of the building that was not done as part of ours interesting and that's where we thought that you know there would be good ways of generating some funds with that so that was basically a lot of everything that I, we were looking at in 1985-86. In 89-90, my second term, uh, really by this time, I think we were really in a very uh, stressful situation that as a result of our direct reimbursement activities and all that, many of our programs ending up closing. And uh, by the uh, summer of 89, we were down to graduating less than 600 people from our programs. And uh, that's when we needed to do something to bring us back because we were dying on a vine. And within a very short period of time, we would have been obsolete. And uh, that was one of the reasons that I was interested in coming forth or the second term and see if we could really kind of turn this around. Wow. A lot of that's, work. That's that's interesting, and I know we've spoken about that a little bit on other episodes. But you know, even today, we're still not graduating enough students. But that's a whole nother mm. topic. But so, Dick, you mentioned you know joint committees at the annual meeting. You know, why was this so important at the time to you? It was important to me at the time because we wanted to go ahead and continue the push for our direct reimbursement and uh, then there were other issues that we needed to be looking at and I just thought it was a waste of time that the committees were not meeting until sometimes September, October, uh, late September, October, 
and uh, even some of them, the first time they met was at the fall assembly. And I thought, you know, it was a lot of wasted time. And if we could have ended up having the committees get their charges ahead of time, they would be able to start working on them. So maybe by the time the fall assembly came, they would have at least met once as a committee or they had a telephone calls and they could start moving on their agendas. Getting a lot of. more done that way. Yes. Well, you yeah. didn't have other ways to communicate. At yeah. that time, so it was all face-to-face. Yeah. It was. So you're talking about you would have three months lost time from August to... November. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was even hard to dial the phone back then because you had that little round, round thing. Round thing. You never even and saw that, that thing, again, Jeremy. You know, I mean, it, Shut it, up. It, and a lot of our <laughs> listeners probably don't even know what we're talking about. So. <laughs> no, but um, the year that I became president, we stayed over a couple of days, and we did it the same way that you mm-hmm. just talked about doing it. Well, I think that just is, is kind of a common sense approach, Dick. Mm-hmm. I mean, had you seen that done before, or was it just something you thought, gosh, why, why are we not doing this? As well? was, I think it was something I was just so energetic, and I wanted to do so <laughs> much stuff. I wanted to get everything going and doing all sorts of things. So, I mean, I think that was really you know my thoughts at the time well, yeah. little did you know what you had started because joint committee conference has a whole culture and a whole life of its own mm-hmm. they've moved it to september that's the way it had been being done and we all go to carlo g's and eat and i think it helps with the enthusiasm i think you're exactly yeah. right mm-hmm. because you get so jacked up mm-hmm. um, because of all the planning and it does have a an entire life of its own yeah. so that was brilliant again yeah, something absolutely. else that was started yeah. that you never knew what that long-term impact was going to be oh no, that's um, true all those years mm-hmm. later well it's interesting in this series just to see where and, and you know people look at it now and it probably doesn't look like a big thing but if it wouldn't have happened this way and they would have continued on, I mean, the organization could have gone in a completely different path mm-hmm. because, you know, it takes a lot of people to do all the work of this organization and association. And obviously the the more cohesive and the more you talk about it and the more action you have, the more results you get. So it's just a little thing that, that meant a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You threw a rock in a pond and there were lots of ripples. I like that. Hey. Yeah. Just call me Confucius. <laughs> yeah, you're confused <laughs> That's a better. Lot. <laughs> That's better than some things I've been called, I guess. Let's talk about direct reimbursement because Sandy alluded to it, Nancy, but, you know, everything starts somewhere, and then it takes years to complete. And basically what happened with direct reimbursement is uh, it became its starting point with us started in 1982-83 during uh, uh, Pat Fleming's term of office in which we started our direct reimbursement pursuit at that time. Pat Fleming sent Peggy McFadden and myself up in the hill to look at the prospects of developing direct reimbursement. So it just kept going from one year to another. It followed in Patrick Downey's term. It followed in Barbara Adams' term. It followed into my term. And now we were into our fourth year of direct reimbursement, and uh, we were fortunate. We had our senator, Matsunaga, who had introduced it on the Senate side, but it was never, we still did not have someone to introduce it into the House. 
At the time, we had very many consultants, and some of our consultants turned around and told us, you know, it's almost the end of this Congress. Why don't we just kind of drop it off and ease off and then come back full term next year? Well, I wasn't too enthusiastic about that. Neither was Peggy, and uh, so we ended up having a meeting with the board right after, uh, shortly after, and we decided it was time. It was now or never because we had one of our consultants, Deb Hardy, who had made the comment. She says, Dick, this is the time. It's now or you may never get it. And so we decided that was going to be it. So that's when we started with our campaign. And I don't know if any of you have seen the buttons way back when. There were little round circle buttons. It was CRNAs on the move. Mm -hmm. And that was our theme, and we were going on. Members in every state, every place that got very much involved into direct reimbursement, and which finally brought us down into April of that my year when we were having the government relations committee meeting. When we got there, we had a large group of people ready to go on to the Hill. We had a couple things that we really needed. We needed to get the chairman of the finance committee on board. And up until down, that was Senator Packwood at the time, and he had not gotten there. He wasn't in there. Well, Sherry Fassett and Suzanne Brown, both at this uh, government relations meeting, turned around and went off to visit Packwood. They came back that he had signed on with the direct reimbursement, so we were set on that point. We just needed, by this time, we had many senators that were signed on. We had lots of congressmen, but nobody ended up was actually introducing it in the House. It was finally being introduced in a House by Bonnie Frank from Massachusetts. Once it got in there, we were set ready to go and wait to see what's going to end up happening. And we continue to lobby this. Well, we're now approaching August, and this is our annual meeting, and this was being held in D.C. And uh, Deb Hardy suggested, she said, I think it would be a wonderful idea if we had a reception, she says, for the legislators and the aides and all. Well, lo and behold, we had the big reception, which was in the Rayburn building, all the nurse anesthetists who were there for the annual meeting, which was about 1,400, 1,500, we were all bussed over to the Rayburn building, and we had one heck of a reception. <laughs> I mean, we were tied up onto it. We were so closely packed together, you didn't know, you know, it was just packed. A lot of the senators, congressmen actually came, as well as their aides and all of that, and Finally, as a result, I guess, of all of our activities, Peggy followed me as the president, and before the fall assembly, she was able to announce that we had received direct reimbursement, that the president had signed the bill, the Omnis Reconciliation Bill, which actually gave us direct reimbursement. Wow. Well, that was a big win. Mm -hmm. I've got one question. You said you had a GRC meeting in D.C. Now, did I understand, did you have a federal GRC committee, and how did that work? Because I think we've changed that just okay. a little bit. Uh, basically, I said the GR meeting, what it is, it eventually got to be known as the legislative day that we used to have, uh, uh, which we have today. Right. It was, it was We were having them then. Mm -hmm. And although I did down the GI meeting, basically what I mean is, uh, you know, we were having our, 
usual day that we'd be spending on the Hill, you know, a couple of day meeting and one day on the Hill to be lo- uh, lobbying and meeting with our legislators. Now, who hired Dave Hebert? Because I know he was a lobbyist that we had during part of the, okay, Dave, not the reimbursement, but the opt out. Dave Hebert came in after my time with the direct reimbursement. Okay. I'm not sure when he became. Because I know with my, we ended up, I think, uh, had Michaels, I think her last name was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's who was our lobbyist at the time. And then after Dave Hebert followed after her, and I'm not sure exactly when that was. Okay, because I remember Dave Hebert from the early 90s, mm-hmm. and that was the, my first exposure. Yeah. Well, you know, just because we're talking about this, and for me as a, as a layperson here, what is the significance of direct reimbursement, number one? And number two, if you wouldn't have gotten direct reimbursement, what would it look like today? Mm. That's very interesting <laughs> that you ask that because that's what we were asking ourselves during that time. As you remember, all of, there was a lot of activity going on at the time for wanting to take care of going because of costs. We were spending so much money, the country was, for health care. So we were looking at DRGs. They were looking at prospective payments. They were looking at everything. Well, as we were sitting there looking at it with our consultants, we realized that each one of the proposals that were coming up could be really damaging to us as CRNAs because if everything got end up thrown under part A of our direct reimbursement, you know, how would that affect those nurse anesthetists who were working for physician groups? Mm-hmm. How would they end up getting paid? Right. It would really have to shift that the docs would end up they would not be able to employ the nurse anesthetist because they'd be all paid on the pod A. Mm. Then when it came to the DRGs, now came the question, hmm, this is good, but if DRGs, you know, how are the nurse anesthetists going to end up being paid? You know, how basically would the funding be done? Would it be a pot money? Then who was going to be the gatekeeper? Mm, Who'd be the one with the money? Who would turn around and say, okay, here's the pot of money. So much is going to surgery, so much to the anesthesiologist, so much to the nurse anesthetist, so much to here and all. So we really realized at the time that basically we needed to go ahead and get be recognized under direct reimbursement. And this way here, we would have our set place of how we would end up getting paid, whether you were a hospital-employed nurse anesthetist, whether you were a physician-employed nurse, uh, nurse anesthetist, or you were an independent contractor. There would be some means for your employer or yourself to be able to be uh, reimbursed for your services and that's why it came to us that it was a necessity well wow. and we're wow. still having the same conversation again today well we are but or I mean, we've circled back Dick, what do you think it would look like today in, in yes. where we are today if this wouldn't have happened what well you know from a couple aspects you know me obviously i'm, I'm always looking at the financial side of things that's what i do but what would it mean for that crna working a w-2 position over here at baptist and what would it mean for an independent contractor crna today see i don't know because we don't know where the system would have gone yeah. without it 
Yeah. You know, would we have gone all under part A? Would we have been all dumped into, you know, into the one part? So would it all be hospital employees? Don't know. Yeah. You mean, know, your wife has addressed, we've asked her this question mm-hmm. before, and Sandy has said that she thought our salaries were directly tied to this mm-hmm. and that we wouldn't have seen the jumps in our salaries because we would have stayed well, I think you know, under just, somebody else's from thumb. From my viewpoint, yeah, you're, you're looking at this from the outside and going, well, do I think the physicians would have given CRNAs as much money as they earn now? Probably not. Okay, may we just go back to another thing, why we were going into direct reimbursement? Sure. Because we had nurse anesthetists who were working for physicians, and they was a stable of nurse anesthetists, 25 or 30, and two anesthesiologists in the department. And those anesthesiologists were billing for each one of those cases as if they were doing it themselves. And they were giving token salaries of twelve and 13000 a year. And, and, and they were making millions. I think our listeners need to listen to that. And that's the point I wanted to get across here. It's almost part of that series we did with Randy Moore talking about what if the ANA didn't exist. But this is why our listeners need to be involved right here. If for no other reason than what Dick just said, I think that was very profound because if you're not sitting at the table, mm-hmm. someone else is making decisions. I think I've heard you say that before. Mm-hmm. And you might have heard that from Sandy. I can't remember where you got it from. I, I get these little Sandyisms and in, in my head now. But I think that's the key, Dick. I think you're exactly right. Yeah, but you know, it's very interesting too. Then of course you always gotta be careful for what you ask for. <laughs> because what you may get is not basically what you mm-hmm. ask for. And basically, yes, we got direct reimbursement. But we did not expect to get the conditions of participation or conditions of payment, which was all directed that the physicians had to do these seven things to be able to get paid for the nurse anesthetist, which then got turned around that the docs were claiming that they needed to be there to be able to control and make sure things were going on. And yet, when it came to the seven conditions of participation, lots of them were not even following that. Well, they confused quality and safety with reimbursement. Correct. And I always tell legislators, whenever you hear somebody start spouting safety, look for the dollar sign. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Safety dollars. Right. I mean, this is good stuff. I mean, we, I think we could do a whole podcast on just this piece. Well, right I here, think, it, again, like you said, it goes back to the fact of your professional organization. And we talk about apathy sometimes, and I, all organizations suffer from this. But if you pay your dues, you are not apathetic. Paying your dues, and that's the level of participation some people want but i do have a problem with people who don't pay their dues and who are not members because they're freeloaders because they are riding on the backs of people like you and sandy and nancy and peggy all of these past leaders who have given their lives for this profession and now all these other people are reaping the rewards of it 
Yeah. Well, you know, I always think about the old 80-20 rule, but in a lot of associations, mm-hmm. what I see at the ANA, it's more like the 95-5 rule. You know, mm-hmm. you got 5% carrying the other 90 or 95%. And, you know, if we could just change that a little bit, I think that would be great. Well, Dick, the other thing you talked about was education and going to a master's level. I imagine that there was a lot of pushback, kind of like going Mm -hmm. to the doctorate level during your time. Okay, well, it was very interesting. And, you know, as John God always said, he was really was kind of amazed the fact that I was a clinical practitioner, was not in per se an educator, and yet education was such a big thing that I was so concerned about for our profession. And at the time back in there, around 85, we were then a big nursing leader in the profession, and uh, people were looking up to us because of our certifications and our recertifications and all that, and here that we were going for direct reimbursement, everything that all the nursing else wanted to end up doing. And it was interesting because the nursing profession was also having the same kind of problems when it came to the basic education. You know, RN entry into practice was everything from a diploma school to an AD program to a bachelor's and master's programs, et cetera. And uh, people were starting to struggle with that. The nurse practitioners were struggling with it, too, because you could be a nurse practitioner with a two-week course or a three-year master's program. So they wanted to end up bringing some continuity and uh, try to get something together with that that was one of the interests that i had as well because here we were we were a profession that had certificate programs diploma programs we had a few baccalaureate programs and i think we only had two master's programs and if all of uh, medicine or all of nursing was going to be moving forward we needed to move forward as well and uh, this is the thing we discussed with the board, and the board was in agreement that we needed to end up doing something about that. The Long-Range Planning Committee, which is now the Strategic Planning, had recommended for a couple of years that we should start looking towards the master's uh, framework, but it was always on a back burner. And decided at that time, here was the time to come forth with it. Now, knowing that people need to take change, that uh, I discussed with the board, we decided that we were going to introduce that at the fall assembly about moving the programs into a master's framework. And we ended up with an hour open forum for people to come up and talk about dislikes, likes, why we shouldn't, why we shouldn't, all of that. Each meeting that we had after that, the spring assembly, the legislative thing, we kept bringing up and having forums. So by the time the June board meeting came forth, we had a good pulse. We had all the members input into it, and we announced at the time that we would end up moving all our programs into a master's framework. And whatever time limit we gave, I think that we realized or not as much we realize as people kept saying, that's too short of a time. Mm-hmm. We need a longer period than that. And uh, as a result, that was the beginning of it. And surely 
all the programs that said that they would never be able to, next thing you know, they got very creative. They got involved into schools of nursing, they got into schools of science and schools of medicine, and all of these schools and be able to eventually bring all our programs into a master's framework. Well, it what really wasn't that long of a time. You were president 85 to 86. Wasn't that instituted in 88? No, it was instituted. Or... Ninety-eight. It was ninety-eight. I oh, think. really? Yeah, so it was, it was just later. Wake Forest who jumped on there a lot quicker because I graduated with a master's. Yeah, that's why. What year did you graduate with a master's? Ninety-two. Ninety-two. Because we had already gone to a master's framework yeah. at Wake Forest. Mm-hmm. And I started in ninety. Yes. So they were way ahead of the curve. They were leading the curve. Shocker. And, you know, not to tell tales out of school, mm-hmm. but uh, Sandy was one of the first people who said, I don't think it's possible. We'll never be able to move into a master's no way. <laughs> and guess who all of a sudden shows up that their program had moved into the master's framework wow. with, the, with the School of Nursing at UNCG. So, <laughs> Well, that's a fun little tidbit. <laughs> that is. That's a really good tidbit. <laughs> so let's fast forward to 1990 and you had the commission and we've done a podcast whenever you heard the music just a minute ago i was trying to figure out which podcast was already published about the commission and that was uh, again when i of my second term that was major major focus because i really saw that you know we were just going down the tubes and mm-hmm. we really needed to get moving on this and you know we couldn't i mean thoughts were i mean should we just open up our own university set mm-hmm. that up everybody comes to the university then go back to their hospitals for the clinical settings you know and did the program in that respect or whatever so we had so many thoughts and the best thing to end up doing was the commission which i won't be labor any more than that but the commission was set up in august september of 1989 and uh, by the June board meeting, the commission had come forth with all its uh, recommendations that really made change. And within a short period of time, we were back graduating over 1,200 students and continue to increase every year since then. And what had it gotten down to? I think you mentioned that before to us. How many students were graduating? At oh, one- uh, when I became uh, president the second time. That year, they had graduated 599 students. Oh, wow. my. Wow. And we always, up until then, it was always 1,100, 1,200, sometimes a little bit more. And then we really, we were told by, you know, many of the consultants, especially uh, looking at healthcare in general, the share study and all of that, was saying just to maintain what we're doing now, plus looking at the growth that we needed to be putting out closer to 2,000 students yeah. a year. We do what twenty four hundred now? Right about twenty two, twenty four hundred is what I hear. So, and it's still not going to be be enough, meet enough, meet the demand. I mean, it looks to me when I look at the numbers that we're going to stay about constant because of the folks that are retiring and mm-hmm. exiting the business to the grads that are coming out. It looks to be about constant, but demand is up, you know, a lot higher than that. So, who's going to fill that gap? And I think that's one of the issues for. Uh, also another podcast. But, yes, um, it is. But yeah, so was this a concentrated effort, Dick, to make this happen? Yes. 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 Reduce the number of students. Yes, and uh, it, it was the 
excuse me, what do you mean to concentrate? You mean for us oh, or the commission or for them to glory? Yeah, from, from an outside viewpoint. <laughs> yeah, from, okay. With the outside viewpoint, it just looked like, you know, the programs were going to continue to close and all, and that we needed to do something. And why was that? Well, because, you know, who controls the institutions who controls the hospitals if it isn't physicians and all they have to do is say we're not going to continue to educate yeah and that's basically why we lost so many of our i mean we lost some of our major medical universities johns hopkins was one of them duke and all yeah Yeah. and basically we had lost all of those because of direct reimbursement. Ah, there we go. There's that word again. They docs turn around. They weren't happy about that. No, they didn't want to turn around. They did not want to turn around and educate the competition. Ah, okay. So, Sharon, what was that symbol you drew on the bottom of your paper a minute ago? It's a dollar sign. Did it have anything to do with that? (laughs) It's always. Well, you know what? Everything is concerned with two things, money and another S word. So, there you go. There's also P words, power. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That's that's the other word. That's that's so true. So, Dick... Obviously, being a two-time past president, and I remember when you moved to North Carolina, you were on the North Carolina board. Right. And whenever I did the best kept secret in healthcare, whenever I went before the board of directors of NCANA to float that idea, it was Dick who took that mantle up mm-hmm. and said, "This is a really good idea." So I thank you for that, Dick. Always being behind me, helping me, and mentoring me, but. Tell us about some of the valuable leadership lessons that you have learned through all of these years of leadership. To be very honest with you is I think the thing that we are lacking the most today is communications with the members directly. Hmm. And I think this was the biggest thing. And I think when we were looking at our programs moving into the master's framework and just coming out with it, Asking for comments, asking where their interests are and all of that, we ended up getting the support. The members were not looking like we were trying to cram something down them, that they were able to speak to it and be able to, you know, either join on board or not. And I find that this is the biggest thing was communications. With direct reimbursement, again, that was communications, getting everybody involved. Certain states that we needed their legislators on board, we got a hold of their state presidents, ended up going to their state meeting, getting those members activated. Communications, and that's what I feel that we've lost today. Well, I know we struggle with how much communication because we – push messages out via social media we push messages out via facebook email text messaging our news bulletin the e-news we have so many things but yeah i wonder we always struggle where that line is well i think it is the tone of communication Mm -hmm. as well sharon you know again i look at this a little bit differently and you know i think that a lot of crnas tune out Mm -hmm. the communication Mm -hmm. from a and a 
<laughs> and I think it's got to be the right tone and the right why. Why mm-hmm. should I pay attention mm-hmm. to this? Mm-hmm. And you've got to figure that out at different levels for different subsets of your population. Mm. Age. Because obviously your millennial generation communicates vastly different than your baby boomer generation. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is with communications and the thing that I always get is all the times that I've, uh, for the length of time that I've been on the board of directors of the AANA, being the president of both times, my board members, our board members could be asked questions and they were able to answer on everything Mm -hmm. but certain issues that ended up being under confidentiality and with that, there's very, very little that was kept confidential. Today, you ask any board members questions, they can't talk about it. Mm. I can't. Uh, what happened at the board meeting? Oh, that's not, we can't talk about that. We can't talk about that. That's where people end up knowing what is going on. What's the mm. secret society? We're supposed to be a member-driven organization when the members don't know what's going on. Because when you ask questions, oh, we can't discuss that. Well, you elected us to be your leaders. We're leading. Well, we were elected as their leaders, too. We led, but we also listened to them, brought them on board with us, which is, I think, is where that's not happening today. Interesting. That's a good viewpoint, Dick. It really is. I mean, again, I'm not privy to a lot of that information, but I think that if that's going on, that is a a definite challenge. Dick, what other profession, if, uh, if you had to choose another profession what would that have been oh well i love to cook i think i would have been <laughs> i keep thinking the cordon blue oh, <laughs> and you know it was interesting because when i ended up after my uh second term it actually not my second term but when i retired i had told sandy i says when i retire i said i am going to charleston south carolina to johnson and wales to there program and i'm going there for at least six months and and uh, oh i was already then johnson and wales moved out of there and moved it to charlotte and i said no i was going to charleston because i wanted to be in the <laughs> charleston <laughs> area not charlotte so that's when it went down to uh, yeah, where charleston it stopped has amazing food <laughs> yes they do yes wow. they do well Dick, you know we want to really thank you for your time thank you for your leadership obviously at more than the ana level but two-time president of ana obviously took a a tremendous amount of your time and effort and that is another reoccurring theme is that you really care mm-hmm. about the nurse anesthesia profession and you know people might not always agree with you and you might not always agree with them but one thing that they'll say about everybody right. in our courage to lead series is that they cared mm-hmm. and they gave a hundred percent every single day mm-hmm. so and yeah. another another scenario of that Sharon. absolutely so, well i think that's a wrap I believe it is. We want to thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mask with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our other episodes on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure and hit that subscribe button. Uh, Leave us a review if it's positive. If not, don't leave us a review. (laughs) Until next time. It's a wrap. Hi, everybody. This is Jeremy. Remember back in episode 45 when my co-hosts Sharon Pierce and Kimberly Gordon talked about the candidate school for nurses that they're piloting at Yale for May of 2020. 
The application process opened on January 1st. If you're a nurse or a nurse anesthetist and interested in running for elected office, or even if you're interested in managing another nurse's campaign, you will not want to miss this opportunity. As the first candidate school for nurses in the country, you will want to be in the inaugural class. Just go to the Yale Nursing website and search Candidate School for Nurses and apply today. Like what you're hearing? Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group. Today's show was made possible by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. And thanks for your support of Beyond the Mask. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment, or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible, and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit OSAEMR.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny.